You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. From Chicago, this is the cover. I'm Avram Kivalevich. I'm Kalman Warch. Kalman, you know, we don't like doing two-part shows. Um, that's been sort of like an inevitable. A lot of people know that, you know, that person, the God of Hadar, everyone says he knows Torah. Or, or that so-and-so came out with the following proclamation about who should vote for whom. So, so the names come out, but there's no, there isn't real clarity on who is in charge and why. And there's no there's no uh, election process. There's no there's no um, process officially. You can and so what ends up happening is you've got all these different people in different institutions, different places who are essentially in charge. And the question is, what's the process for how they become in charge? And is the process um, for for um, the way that we um, uh, disseminate leadership today amongst the Jewish people? Is that a process that's the most beneficial for us? Or, or do we have to look at the process the way that it is today? And I know we haven't talked about it, so it's all kind of vague right now. But Or do we have to look at it and say, maybe there's some elements, maybe the Torah can provide us with some perspective for how we should be doing this. Yeah, okay. Well, the Torah, actually, if we start with Moshe Rabbeinu's own uh, request, according to Chazal, that his children, should somehow lead after him. And Moshe seems to think that that makes sense. I mean, Moshe knows, especially if you go according to the Zohar and other sources, Moshe knows the essence of the neshama of almost everybody in Kal Yisrael. Uh, and somehow he has a achdus with them and recognizes what makes them special and significant. Uh, and you would think Moshe is being on of Mikol Odom, wouldn't let his personal negias get involved. And yet Moshe seems to want his children to have the leadership role after himself now i mean there are some who would read it that moshe actually felt that uh, his kids were were capable at least capable enough um to to be able to lead somewhat right but but either way he's told otherwise he's told told so therefore it seems to be that itself you know the, the problems involved and why moshe would want it is really a secondary question. You're right. The main idea that I think one can get from there is it isn't in terms of being the Godo Hador or the main teacher of Klaus Yisrael, or as the way the Rambam says in the Hakdama, the, the, the keys to the Mesora isn't dependent on being uh, trans, uh, transferring from parent to child. Now, there are two. And logically, it would be hard to justify that, right? I mean, it would be hard to say that we, we, we are, the reason we choose the next leader is the, the person who can best help us transfer all the information. So why give it to someone? Why should that be inherited? Right. I mean, what's the logic at all, right? right? Now, I mentioned last week, I think, although I'm not sure if we developed it, that the Torah, however, does give uh, significance to uh, the lineage when it comes to the idea of Malchus and the idea of Kahuna. And there it would seem, because it talks about Lazaro Acharov, Yeshav al Kiso Acharov, and by the Mashiach of the Kohen Godel, also Lazaro Acharov. So there seems to be, God seems to understand that certain institutions, we need to see it as being bound together in the DNA. The same way the primal um, objective, so to speak, of being a human being is to procreate and push further into the generations. 
God matches that in terms of, or he mixes Torah, uh, Malchus, and Kahuna with that. Kahuna is clearly in the in the DNA of the Kohanim, and with right, and 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 the same thing is true in terms of Malchus. Um, and I think what happens, this is what I think here the issue is. I think what happens is that at certain periods, there was a conflation of the main teacher of Klal Yisrael to the Melech of Klal Yisrael, or, right, not Kohanim, but, but Kohanim Gedolim also at one time, as you know, in Bayesheni, started taking Malchus type of, uh, not just from the Hashmanayim, but from, in general, acting as Melech. And I think because of that, there was like, and, and as you know, we talked about this off the year, that what was, think about Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai. We talked about Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai, who was not uh, a descendant of the, the Nasi before him. He was not, right? Yochanan Menzakai was not Yonason ben, he was not Yonason ben Uziel's um, uh, son, right? He was just the next great teacher. Uh, Yochanan Menzakai asks uh, Vespasian to make sure that we have Rav Gamliel. Right, so one can see in that that Yochanan and Zakai recognizing that we don't have our own sense of malchus anymore. There isn't any Jewish uh, their own their Jewish kingship has been eliminated. He wants to sort of transfer the glory of kingship to be completely in Yavne and in the person who represents the Torah. Right. And they do say, for, you know, for example, um, not everyone agrees with this, but the idea that. Um, that you were mentioning last time when we did discuss it, that if you look at the Zugos, the Zugos, the pairs, as listed in Pirkei Avos, goes from teacher to student to Kibol Meham, right? It's it's who they received from. And then you get to Hillel and Shammai, and then all of a sudden after Hillel, it, it does go father to son, father to son, Shimon Gamliel, Shimon Gamliel, Shimon, um, Rabbi Huda Nasi. And, and, but we know, I know this is an oversimplification, but that, that's really a response to the Romans appointing the Herodian dynasty and sort of saying that your king is now going to be this Edomite uh, puppet. So we kind of responded with our, with our own sort of semi-Malchus. I mean, it's not, it's not like we picked uh, slouches. I mean, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel as you met, is, wasn't Rabbi Meir, but Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was still Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Uh, so, 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 they, that was that may have been for that situation, but yeah. if we can fast forward, how, how did the people still somehow hold on to that, sort of use that as as saying, well, you see from this that leadership. I, I, I do want to point out before we go on, and um, for those who are listening, the difference between why why there should be a difference between the leadership when it's in Torah transmission versus the leadership in Malchus. I think it's important to point out because a king, we're, we're not used to the concept of a king. So we think of kings as just political leaders. They're not. There's something essential and different. It's like they're a different human being, the king. And so therefore there's something that's needed in the DNA. I'm I, I, what, and the reason why I'm saying this is because even if we were to assume that there's somehow some concept of kingship that gets passed along in the rabbinate, we, we've lost all kingship today, and it's more about the leaders and who the best leaders should be is who we appoint. So, and yet somehow we still held on to all these aspects of of nepotism. I mean, can, can I can I push you forward maybe a couple of thousand years? <laughs> okay. If we bring it into the most previous millennia, I don't know where you want to start from, but but how, there's so from... many there's there's two there's so many places we can 
uh, parachute into and see how there was a uh, there was uh, a lack of clarity about who should be the manig and who should be the Rosh Hashiva, who should be the Rebbe. Um, so let let me ask you, if I may, I know you're the, you're the historian here. Could you give us one example from, let's say, the Rishonim, one example from okay. the Achronim, or maybe... Okay, so we already sort of talked about the Tanoim. We already sort of talked about how, you know, it was, you're correct, even before Yochanan and Zakkai, uh, there had already been this idea of Hillel representing the Davidic dynasty. And although the, he took, he takes over from the Bnei Becerra, there was an applause that he represented based David. And you're correct, as Jewish power waned, even though there not been the destruction of the base of Mikdash, having someone who sort of has the power of Melech in his veins was important. Um, but 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 I think what happens is is that after the Chorban, throughout the school for the Tanaim and Amaroyim, we we get a situation. For example, in the beginning of uh, of, of the first period of the Amaroyim, you have Rehuda Nasiya, who's no as you say, like Shemim and Gamil, no slouch, but he would have to do a lot of homework and do a lot of cramming. For him to stand with Rabbi Yochanan Rishlokish together, yet Rabbi Yochanan Rishlokish did their utmost to be machabed him as okay. He's he's the nasi, he's the nasi. So what was interesting was, and I would say the same thing with Rabbi Shimon Gamliel or Mayor, um, and you can even see that. And I know I, I, I'm going away from your question, but you even see it with in, in, in Chazal, where Rabbi Gamliel before things <laughs> before things got toxic between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua. There was that beautiful Gemara Rosh Hashanah where he says that you are my Rebbe and, right, but tell me die, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right? And, and that was an incredible period where you could recognize that, look, there needs to be someone who seems to be in charge because the community needs to see a figure that sort of has an artifice of Malchus with them. But there was a recognition that the real intellectual power was with Rabbi Yeshua, not with Rabbi Gamliel. Yeah. And the same thing I think is true with Yehud and Nesia and Rabbi Yochan and Rish Lakish. The problem is, is that as we continue throughout the Doros, that it's such a subtle balance to be able to say, look, you know, look, I'm going to run the show and I'm going to be the official supposedly policy setter. But I need you for the brains and for the ideas and for the for the truth, whereas the, the, the human policy about the direction the people take, that's sort of a Malchus type of Bechina, uh, which maybe even Alpi Kabo and Alpi Sod makes sense that you should have, you can almost say the same thing in the original yeshiva, if there was that, in Mitzrayim. There's Yehuda and Levi, right? You have Yehuda and Levi, there's Yehuda who's sort of like the, Mal, the Melech Rosh Hashima, and Levi is obviously the one who's more tapped into the authentic Mitzrayim. So, so I just want to put that on the side. Okay, so now, thousand years later. All right, so let's uh, approximately. So w- w- obviously we have the Tkufas HaGaonim, right? So we know that there was a, um, <laughs> the, Ga- the Gaonic yeshivas were being assaulted by weak- the weakness of their leadership, uh, especially when it came to the fact that the Karaites had, as you know, uh, strengthened themselves and and they were they had a great public relations campaign first of all they had a great origin story right the story of anan right well what a beautiful origin story right so they were able to push that origin story look what we're about and there was a certain freedom and there was a certain simcha the fact hey you know we are Maf- and, and and they could always say I, I, in general i i always believed that the most attractive thing about it was the that that people are always told within judaism that 
that you're stuck and limited to these um, very specific ways of thinking. And here's someone who, who throws at you basically like a reform kind of thing. No, no, you make Judaism how, how it sounds right to you. And dump and me. Very and and dump me reason. next in the next generation. You can dump me as well. That's what Anand that's said. Right. Yeah, Anand yeah. says, you mafarish it, including what I just said. You can throw that out. Yeah, so, right. So I, that's very attractive. And for people who don't have their fundamentals straight, you know, that's that's something easy to fall into. But remember, there's a secret. But are you suggesting that that's related to the leadership? Of course. That, that was a failure. Look, we, we the, the, uh, the our side of the story is Hanan is this frustrated Gaon who got passed over and decides he's going to create his own version of what learning is. And even though it's like Shimshon uh, bringing down the pillars on himself, even though it's true, what he's going to do is going to probably eliminate the possibility of his children becoming the leaders. He don't care because he is so frustrated that he's willing to destroy the system. And the fact that the Karite schism had steam, despite the illogical aspect of it, shows you how powerful of a draw that was. And the Gaonim, who were not into being creative, the Gaonim who basically saw themselves as the guardians of the old tradition, we are Sura, we are Pumpadisa, we are the Amaroyim. I mean, the Gaonim, as, as the Rambam points out, you know, we're, we're an Achos Darga, not in their mind, though. The Gaonim thought, as we reach what we call the, let's say, year 1000 or something like that. So the Gaonim thought that they were... You know what? With all of that said, and I understand you've got your critiques, they brought things through, right? They they did carry things through. So by the time you get to the riff and the Rambam and the Rush, in a con, in a old, material, right? Look, if I I am sure that if I was able to speak to the Rambam and he would say, "Kivalevich, come, we'll talk privately." Oy vey. I'm at least the riff and he I. Talks and about the got, in plenty, right? Right? I know, but but he would say they almost destroyed learning. I am sure he would say that to me because uh, I okay, because, but let's because, let's let's, let's right. and, and, and what's that? And the reason was was because everything had to go through them. In other words, they had to keep their hands on everything. So the Karaites really had a tremendous amount of critique on them. First of all, they weren't inventive, they weren't creative, they were just careholders. And the main thing was they didn't know Tanakh. And and and, and that was the Karaites uh flag. Look how beautiful the mikra is. Mikra. The, the so you're saying this is also related to the idea of who, uh, of the leader is not necessarily being um, the ashkailos, you know, the, the sort of knowing everything, and and therefore they were missing something that was essential to human spirituality. The same yeah, again, way. I'm going to push you forward in time. Let's go forward. Okay. In wait, time wait, wait, wait. So they bring in Sadia. So Sadia is he's not mayor. He's not a son-in-law. He's not the son. He. Shrira and high is the usual way it worked. Shrira and high, right? But there, you're picking examples that did work with Shrira. Shrira and high worked, but Sadia was a proof that sometimes what we needed was someone who was not from the family, someone who had studied in the yeshiva, but someone who was what the time needed. So that's one example of where you see should we change the system. Uh, let's go with the Rambam now. Let's go a couple hundred years later in the Rambam. The Rambam, of course, becomes after his death, the most celebrated Risha, right? The celebrated leader in, in, in Yemen and in Provence and all these places, they are singing his hosannas and they are almost like, right? But, that's right. Now, after the Rambam dies, the Rambam leaves, uh, you know, an 18-year-old son who is a, 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 one of the most important, in my mind, 
characters to understand. Rabbeinu Avram and Arambam. Not one of the top Rishonim in any way, shape, or form, but he takes on the title, maybe grudgingly, but eventually with a certain force, as the Nigid, the leader of Fostat Jury, whatever that meant. Now, his son, Reb David, also the Nigid. To me, the Rambam would happy that his son had Parnassa in some way if he was doing something, although maybe he'd rather he'd be a doctor instead. Right? But the point is, once again, we see what's going on over here. You know, I don't know how um, how, how vi- vital Fostat Jury was, but we know Rabbeinu Avram and Rambam ended up locking horns with his community because he tried to institute Sufism, uh, a certain type of Jewish Sufism in terms of Avoda, which is a very interesting thing from my perspective to analyze. But he, believe me, he was not his father. And the same well, thing- I, I think uh, even more to emphasize your point, the Rambam's role wasn't just as the leader of Jews in Egypt. The Rambam was the leader of Jews all over the world. People sent me questions. I mean, look at the Igeris Tema. Right. So you don't see this same sort of, if, if if the son of the Rambam would have taken over, we should have all these letters from the son of the Rambam changing the world. And we don't. And right. we don't. So so are you suggesting then, um, do you have a name that you would have, that you would have, um, recommended, so to speak, for the I next leadership? Well, look, One of I the Rambam students, maybe? You, we, we have Rabbi Yosef Ibn Ankin, who, of course, right. is, the, right. is, is the person who the Rambam saw as the stellar personality of the next generation, and he's just a footnote as a person who, wrote, who, who gets the, who's officially the recipient of the Mar right. Um Look, you know, however, let's talk about, let's, let's, in Europe, we have uh, in Provence, for example, we have the great Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Avram Av Bezdin. Not the Ravid, but the Rav Av Bezdin. And as you know in your learning, that many times the names get mixed up. But there's more than a reason just that they're similar. His son-in-law was Avram ben David, the, fa- the Ravid, right? So here yeah. we have, I think, in the Rishonim period, an incredible uh, felicity where we have someone who is considered the great Provence, when Provence, of course, was the seat of, of enlightened Torah learning, as you know, right? The Meiri is only the transcriber of those great ones before him. The Meiri is the last who sort of like, you know, you know, finishes the book because of persecution and everything that closed down. But even in terms of intellectual uh, power and capability, he's just a, a, a malakit. The people that he sees as Gedolia Mepharshim is the Rabbi Vramav Bezdin, the, the, the Av Bezdin, uh, right? And, and, and then you have his son-in-law, who is the Raivad. And the Raivad is the true God Adar, and he is the son-in-law of the previous God Adar, right? Now, many people will say that there was perhaps jockeying for that girl, right? Because, right, there's... Right, well, I, I, just for the sake of our listeners, I think we should uh, expand on that just, just for a second. Sure. Meaning that there's this little bit of a, a suggestion out there that that the the that the Rosh Hashiva or the leader of the Jewish people, assuming his son is not in place to to take over, so then he, but he still needs to groom the next leader. So the Wait. son-in-law is. Okay, I, I, I know I'm. You, you're Wait, correct. No, 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 no. It's no. It's, but, it's a little bit different. But, but this, the point what, I'm making this, is the idea of son-in-law is another option, right? Because but it's, you're, but you're a, choosing a son. Right, That's right, the idea. Exactly, right. and in a way. It's a better option 
In other words, basically you have the Hamon expecting it to be like you see in Fostat, it's going to be his son because they are, they are conflating with their lack of uh, sophistication, the idea of Melech and Rosh Hashiva, and why not? Let's put them together anyway. Okay. Well, and, and therefore, sons end up being more important than they should. Right? As long as they can yeah. maybe manage. Rabbi Vernon van Rambam is not a piker. He, he knows his father's Torah well. He's a thinker. He's only 18 years old. And by the time he's even a bar mitzvah boy, his father is barely in the house and he has very little connection with him. Doesn't make a difference. He is his son. With a son in law, however, we have this idea that the best. Like the the women were so insignificant. Like you think you think the Ravav Bezdin's daughter had didn't have much of a choice in that. She wasn't like Bastar of Chista that the Gemara says actually says no. I want this one and that one. I think what we know about women in the Middle Ages were that especially the age difference between men and women at the time. That yeah, I don't know if this is our topic, and I, wait, I, wait, I, but I, I but, disagree with you on that. I, I think the girls, the girls ended up making the choice much more could than be. the fathers. But, but that's another subject. No, well, but, but, we, we have... okay, but I think whether it maybe it aligned with the Rebbe. In other words, the father-in-law and the daughter-in-law was a better choice because you could choose your best student. And now what you have is the veneer of Malchus. Oh, it's in the family. This is all part of the DNA because his child will be the grand child of the original Rosh Hashiva, but that, that's what I think occurs. So instead of just saying meritocracy, which should have been the way the Rosh Hashiva and Lunil should have been, uh, should have been picked, they should have said the best Talmud, they needed to overlay it with, and you will be my son-in-law, sort of a little bit of throwback to um, David Amelech and Shaul, right? There was something about... That wasn't for the sake of Malchus, right? Shaul did not offer whoever Kilios Goliath will be the next king. But, 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 but I, I think that it's almost like a message from God that he's not going to let the previous kingship, so to speak, completely be severed, but at least let David be a son-in-law of Shaul so that on some level Shaul's still going on. But, but let's push it forward another. Okay, another let's go for okay. So, okay, let's go a couple six hundred. Let's go eight hundred years. Okay. Okay. So approximately. So again, the yeshiva that you know that I consider like I consider it alive here here in uh, my little attic, right? Velozhin yeshiva, right? So here you have Velozhin yeshiva started by okay, not I, I, the Vilna Gon's children. Even though the Vilna Gon was not the rabbi of the city, but clearly, even at the end, towards the end of his life, everybody knew that the most important address in Vilna was not Rav Shmuel Teisvatah or the, the, the official rabbi of the city, how Choshev they were. Here was a man who didn't have any official position at all, right? He didn't get paid any salary. He wasn't the rabbi of anything, but he was, this was the address. I love Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Right, right. That's it. I, I think. Those are the ones who transcend all the politics. The Vilna Gaunter of Chaim Kanievsky. No one appointed them. No one elected them. They didn't have... People just knew they're the greatest. They're the right, best out right, there. Right. right. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, you know, similarly to today, where you have many, many great thinkers and scholars, uh, people who can write incredible svarim, but everybody knows the God of Ador is of Chaim Kanievsky. Everyone knows he's the Sarah Taira. He is the God of Ador. And, 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 and there's no question about it. Okay? And, right now. So you ever find people knew that about the Vilna Gon too. Even in a door that, that you have 
Rav Yonis and Eibushitz and Rav Yaakov Emden. I mean, these men are, are giants, and they're both trying to they're they're both trying to to there, position. There should be Yehudas in the world. They're trying to position themselves. Who's, who's the Vilna Gon going to come out on whose side, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Yonish and Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, oh, it's a forgery. That letter can't be from the Vilna Gon. The, the Grow wouldn't have written that letter. Who cares? He's 20 years younger than you. And yet these old rabbis are all jocking to saying, no, the Vilna Gon likes me. The Vilna Gon says, I'm right. Right? Which really shows you that, and as you said, Rav Cheskalando, who also, I mean, those four names right away, you could spend your whole Torah life being involved with Rebelio, Bershom Azam and Avilna, Rav Yaakov Ben Svi Emden, Rav Yenis I forgot his father's name for a while here, and, and, and Rav Cheskalando. And yet the Vilna Gon, if, if you take a vote, Vilna Gon number one. Right, which is which is incredible. Okay, so the Vilna Gon at the end of his life uh, gives over to his Talmud, who is not his son. Uh, the idea, uh, how important it is that whatever he got from him uh, needs to be uh, built into a school. There needs to be a school of the derech of the Goyim, because the the Goyim understood, although he was not a politician and he didn't want to make change. Actually, he realized. He wasn't the personality to do that, although he was a very strong-willed person, that learning has to change. And therefore, Rav Chaim, who is a Evan Nemon to the Derech of the Vilna Gon, is going to start a yeshiva, which he eventually does, which is the Velozhin yeshiva started in the beginning of the 19th century, closed towards the end of the 19th century. And this is the yeshiva that is the most um, famous yeshiva in Europe. It's the Lithuanian jewel. It's the place where even Chassidusha Bachram come. Uh, it's the, it's the mother of every yeshiva today. Him. So that's Veloshan. So, okay, Rav Chaim, not the son of the Vilna Gon, but the starter of the yeshiva, of course, has the schluss. There was a, there was actually, by the way, parenthetically, there was, I heard this from Rav, Rav Shmuel Yaakov Weinberg, that there was an Alta Almana who was, was, was very wealthy, and she left in her tzavah that all these monies should be under the control, the stewardship of the Godo Hador. So there was a, they just, they needed to decide who the Godel Ador was. And there was a Besden that was convened to figure out who in 1808 or wherever it was, who the Godel Ador was. There were three candidates. There was Rafki Vega, who was at that time sort of like the next Vilna Gon in terms yeah. of, right? There was Rafki Vega, right? There was um, Rav Mordechai Benet, who as a Rav, was in Moravia, was like a, a tremendous influence in his community, much more Kivager had in Posen. Kivager was was clearly the place... Mordechai Banat was much more worldly. Yes, and he put his stamp on this community, and right? And the third one was Rav Chaim So they were machria that the money should go to Rav Chaim right? And it's poshit that in terms of power of learning, Rav Chaim Pales in comparison to Ricky Vega, right? Ricky Vega, right? and again, I'm not a Levi, I would be a tenth or a hundredth of Chaim Veloshner, but 
Rafki Vegar was clearly the great mind of learning, and you can see that, that he is the Kovea, along with the Ktsois and the Sivas. Those three men were Kovea, what learning was about in the 19th century, not <laughs> what's in uh, the Seyus from Rav Chaim. But Rav Chaim is the Godel Ador. So, Rav, why? Because he has the yeshiva, which has most of the learning. Most of the Torah learning is what he does creates more Torah learning inherently in human beings on, a, on an actual level than the others. Now, Rechaim dies. Who takes over? So the Rosh Hashiva after him was Rabbi Yitzchak. Okay. So Rabbi that's, Yitzchak, his son. that's his son. His son, of course, is a very a brilliant man, probably smarter than Rechaim in many ways, sharper, much more involved in understanding human beings and politics and things like that. Uh, again, we don't have much from him, just the Pet Kodesh and some other... Uh, you yeah, know, his I, comments on the Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, right. Of course, he and he helps edit it and put it together, and obviously he's not he's no slouch. But then the big issue, what he does incredibly is he increases the size of the Vosh Yeshiva by four times. So now you have not only the Vilna Gons, you know, Yeshiva in a sense, but the greatest Yeshiva, and it's now at its height. Who takes over as the Rosh Yeshiva? Now, obviously, the, the person also, by the way, just I want to mention, Voloshin was a yeshiva town. And because of that, um, the, uh, it was, being a Rosh Hashiva meant you were the rabbi of the city as well. Most of the people in the town, like, it was like Las Vegas in a way, a million of dollars. But it's all about the casino. It's all about the yeshiva, right? So you have these balabatim. It's who, still true of uh, certain towns, you know, but, right. uh, you know, Scranton. Scranton became about the yeshiva, and that's it, right? The Torah part, in other words, the people, but he, right. The community, but, the whole thing right, was but, about. Right, but Voloshin, I would assume a guy who lived in Voloshin knew about the yeshiva as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, by him, the yeshiva was, because it, it afforded, there was no dormitory. So basically what happened was you, the Balabatim would get money. So you would have money as being a boarding house. That's the way the Balabatim got money right. from the yeshiva. Point being, is that you were the rov of the city and the Rosh Hashiva at the same time. All right. Who takes over when Rabbi Tzila dies? Okay, so there's, he has two son-in-laws, Rabbi Yitzhak Fried, Naftali Tzviyuda Berlin, the Nitziv. So who takes over? Who takes over as, as, as the Rosh Hashiva? And he has two son-in-laws, right? So maybe it should be this one. So officially when he dies, there are co-Rosh Hashivas, right? That's what they decide, the two Rosh Hashivas. Um, and... Um, and and, and 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 there's there's a lot of tension here about this. Why should these two men be the Rosh Hashiva, right? Especially people felt the Nitziv, who was sort of like it's it's incredible to think about this. But at the time, he was like a like a quiet fellow. Nobody right, saw. Right. I mean, it, people didn't know that the Nitziv was the Nitziv. They thought right. he was just some nice guy. Yeah. A nice Masmid who learned, they didn't yeah. think that there was much to him. And they said, You're, he's the Rosh Hashiva? We, we are producing geniuses who could be Rabbeim who are able to say beautiful Torah. And, right? and, and, and especially what happens is, is that Rav Chaim's great, eventually, well, I want to get to that in a second, but eventually the, 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 what happens is, is that the, the, the Nitziv always really had a hard time as a son-in-law of and, and the, the younger son-in-law of asserting himself. When Rebbezitzak Free dies, the Nitziv becomes the Haif for Shashiva, and they bring in the great grandson of Rav Chaim Velazhner, who is we know him as the Beis HaLevi. So the great grandson versus the wife, the husband of Rav Chaim's um, granddaughter. Oh. 
So here you have these two Rosh Hashivas together in the middle of the 19th century, the Nitziv and the Beis HaLevi. And once again, there is this, uh, there's this issue. The, the, part of the problem with the Nitziv is that he had to spend a number of years proving that he indeed was intellectually capable to be the Rosh Hashiva, that he was chosen not just because he was a nice guy, but that was the that was the the complaint that he who is he because the daughter married him that means zero and that was part of why the push went not for meritocracy because they always mention how the Beis Halevi was a great grandson of Chaim but I I really believe Kalman that it was considered a secondary factor the main thing was the Beis Halevi is the brains and nobody can match him intellectually he was sharp and brilliant. The the Chassidim, the Chassidish Shabbacham loved him. Everybody loved him because he was a mafalpo. He was brilliant. He he was able to fuse pilpul and gaonis uh, at the same time a, a, in a way that the Nitziv wasn't able to do. The Nitziv right. gave almost almost feeling like what they looked for. They went they went to meritocracy, meaning let's find the biggest Tamil Chacham, and we'll just put a condition, and he's got to be somewhat related in order for it to somewhat fulfill the the thing. But as long as it, it's he's not a complete stranger. We'll put right. him over the son-in-law who right, I, right. And, and, and that's exactly that's exactly the. Um, but it feels like when they're doing that, that they're aware of what they're doing, right? Right. right. And uh, to me, right. that's that's so important that they realize, you know what, we are kind of looking for meritocracy, but we're gonna try to keep it within. Right. And, 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 and what happens later after the, you know, the, without getting into the whole machlekas between the two, the Beis HaLevi leaves and the Tziv wins. And I think eventually in the Jewish world, after he publishes the Shiltas, people see that, no, this man is something. This man is somebody of, 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 of extreme um, thoughtfulness and, and, and brilliance uh, in his own way. In, in some ways, I think, I think if, if and, and the proof is, I think you'll agree with me. That if you look in terms of how many times uh, Nitziv's Svarim are quoted today versus how many times the Beis HaLevi's Svarim are quoted today, I think the Nitziv historically has won. I don't think that's a fair comparison. You know, the Beis HaLevi's commentary on the Torah is difficult. No, no, right, 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 um, right. I, I'm talking about the Chuvas Beis HaLevi. So even though the Chuvas Beis HaLevi are considered things that it's people at the time thought that Nitziv could never even would never be able to write such profound uh like brilliant things but i think today's generation you, you can see the preponderance of quoting shiltais and, and and things which you yeah, don't I, see I, I hear that but, but again bringing it back to, to i am point my, of... my my point is you're right at the time this was the issue Nitziv is only a son-in-law the base halevi is the most brilliant person let's go with him the base halevi leaves and Nitziv incredibly takes as a Semi son in law, Rav Chaim, right? Who was the Beis Halevi's son, right? It was his Nitziv's granddaughter who marries, but the Nitziv referred to him as his Adim. And once again, in, 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 the, in, the, in the 1880s the, or 1870s, when the yeshiva almost at the time was closing, you have the. Oh, I mean, the, that, that is the next, that, that's the next right. big genius, right? right. That you is have Rav Chaim, right? And here you have this incredible mind that was unparalleled, bigger than his father. And and yet, and I, I want to point out when we say genius, we don't just mean the person who was who was just intellectually the smart. Because many people will go, well, why should the smartest person be the Rosh Hashiva? What we mean by that is leadership and knowledge and understanding, charisma, of students, and ability to give that over the the, the package. 
but 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 pulled by this um, incredible talent uh, and ability to understand and learn and teach Torah. I mean, that's right. the primary right. role. Oh, okay, right. right. So there was. It, it, I'm just clarifying the right, terms. Right. I, I think when people say genius, you know, just because someone's smart doesn't mean, right? It right. means that they're smart and they're the good kind of smart and they know how to use it. Something right. different than has been up until this point and something that is, is so unique, but at the what's same time. What's needed? They, they are right. what's needed. It's, right. it's unique, but it can also fill the need of what was necessary. Like Einstein, in terms of understanding what the scientific world needed to know at the beginning of the 20th century. The idea yeah, of going... Rabbi Avram, I, I know if we start you on Belagian, we'll be here all day. Wait, I'm going to push you. Wait. We've got to go into modern times. Okay, so we, what happens, though, however, is that Nitziv is very unsuccessful in bringing his son in. He would like his son, Mayor Berlin, to be the Rosh Hashiva, right? The students, you vote with your feet, right? And in Belagian, Unlike the yeshivas of today, the students were very empowered. The students had a lot of control about how things would happen, and they did not like uh, Rav Meir Berlin, although Rav have this period of who should be in charge. Um, now, let's go to the modern era, where we also have an example of it that I was a witness to, um, and that is the what is now the largest yeshiva in the world, I think, although I, I, I'm not sure if Lakewood or Mir, but let's assume that both of these giants, uh, I, I'm going to give Mir uh, the higher, the upper hand because it's an Eretz Yisrael and because it, it represents Yerushalayim. Okay, so Mir and Yerushalayim. Everybody knows what it is now is not what it was. I mean, it turned into something now. Um, when I came to Mir in 1977, Mir was the American option. But there was Hevron and there was Panovich. And Mir was one of the big three or four. I think you'll agree that Mir has become, has mushroomed into something much bigger than just an option. It's in a way, Mir Yeshiva is probably the main yeshiva in the world today, despite the fact that Panovich and et cetera, Mir has, has, has become that. All right. So, but when I was there, this Mir, which had not yet become Mir, uh, who's who's running the yeshiva? Who's running the yeshiva? Um, so I came after Reb Lezer Yudel had died. The yeshiva was Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. Once again, Reb Lezer Yudel picks the best. Reb Chaim, Sachiner Eli, picks Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. I have to say that Reb Lezer Yudel's daughter, I interacted with her quite a bit because I would see her. She ran the show. She cooked on Shabbos. I was in her house a number of times. So I would assume that this wasn't just, you're marrying her, right? You're marrying, this is what's happening. Yeah, I don't think that's whatever would happen. I, oh. I, I, but the thing is, you know, when we talk about son-in-laws, because it's not just genius, but also because they're personalities, they, they were interesting to the girls as well, not just to the, the future students are interested in these, in these charismatic personalities because they're actually um, charismatic, right? And Rav Chaim, in many ways, I think, was his father-in-law superior. Despite the fact that Blazer Yudel, you know, was a, uh, he was the son of, of the altar, I believe, right? He was the altar's, was the altar's son, right? He was the altar's son. But the, um, the uh, Rav Chaim was something unique. He was a, a blend of Rav Shimon's brilliance and also really a, a Bucky, Bechola Tairakula. Um, and, okay, that makes sense. So even though Laser Yudel has children, 
Yeah, he's the mashkiach. He does something else. He chazap is the mashkiach. But it was clear the son-in-law representing this that meritocracy that he's the Iker. Now Rav Chaim was nifter. Okay, the problem there was that Rav Chaim had a, had chosen the heir apparent. Now you could argue that Rav Nochem Partsovich, Rav Nochem Troker, did not have Rav Chaim's qualities. And there were many people, even in my time, that said, hmm, he's definitely the greatest, and he can definitely do analysis better than anyone. But he doesn't have the complete hekif of Kola that Rav Chaim does. Now, as Rav Chaim walks in, you're talking about a mind like the Beis HaLevi. You're talking about someone who knows everything and is incredible. And as his, as you can see from his children, that Rav Chaim like, carried within him the genes of of, of, of real genius. Rav Nochem Trucker, his son-in-law, was a plugger, a worker, a, a, a masmid like the Chazanish in a certain way, right? To the point that, who knows, he might have accelerated his illness, you know, because of course he had MS and other things. And his, his intense concentration pushed himself to the point that unfortunately he was a broken person. So, so when I was in Mir, we all knew that Rav Nochem would have been the heir apparent, and I heard stories about how when he first gave his sheer chloe, everybody stood up as if they were coronating the melech. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to even walk to give the sheer chloe anymore. And he was confined to a wheelchair. And because of that, although he was in a way the choice, he couldn't really be the active Rosh Hashiva. So there were other daughters. Now, one of the other daughters married a chevroner, a sharp looking, frock wearing really dashing type of person, uh, you know, Rabbi Yitzhak Hazrachi. So, who, right? But I remember that when Rabbi Yitzhak Hazrachi got up to give the shmooze, they shut the lights on him. I was there when the Bakram decided to, someone went because they heard Rabbi Yitzhak Hazrachi, who they felt was just some chevroner that they pulled into the yeshiva, a son-in-law that wasn't worthy of being a son-in-law. That was a son-in-law that was chosen not by Rav Chaim. It was chosen because I can tell you he was not the sheer coma of, of Rav Chaim or Rav Nochem. He was a good-looking gishmaka personality. He was a sweep-you-off-your-feet schmoozer, <laughs> the opposite of Rav Nochem. And yet, he's the son-in-law. There's another son-in-law, Rav Meir Weiss, who had a yeshiva, uh, I forgot where he was, he was in, in, in um, so Rabbi Yitzhak Hizrahi, no, there was, we're not taking him, right, we're not going to take him at all, so, um, so you're giving me an, an interesting example, and I think it's a, it's a great example of the way that things should be, which is that the greatest experts on who should be the next leader is not the previous leader or fellow leaders, but the people being led. The people being led have the best understanding of what it is that they're looking for, which is why democracy is so popular in the world. So, so, so but, but you're saying that in the yeshiva world, that's it. That's an exception, though. That's very rare for that to happen, right? I mean, you're giving me an example of where it did happen, but but okay. that's not the way it typically uh, uh, happens. I will tell you that it's. I think it's part of an Israeli um, uh, chutzpah mentality that that is, is, that especially students that were born after the Kamas Medina have, which is, and, and I think they assimilated from the zeitgeist of Israel, which is sort of like, in a way, 
you know. Well, you, know, you tell me Velazhin did it. So if, if Velazhin did it, it can't be completely uh, and modern influence, right? Well, if the, if the students. It doesn't happen in America, though. That's the problem. The American guys, despite them being intellectually, in, you know, wanting curious and probing, they've accepted that, you know, who should be their Rosh Hashiva? Lakewood. Let's say Lakewood. So here we have in Lakewood. So we have Rabbi Rucham Olshan, who is a wonderful Dhammachal, a person, is he married, he's an Aiden by Rabdoiv. Right. right. Now, right. Rabdoiv, so he's a, a grandson-in-law of Rabbi Okay. So really had Rabdoiv himself is really an incredible story. Rabdoiv should have been Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. Rabdoiv was actually sent to start Philly. Reb Dave was actually, I believe, the Rosh Hashiva that Rav Aaron chose him because Reb Dave was an Eloi from Europe and Eretz Yisrael, uh, a, a tremendous Balmachshava, a Makubal in many ways. He was very into Chokmas Hasoid, but also uh, a brilliant thinker, an Onov, a really an amazing combination of things. And Reb Dave had his marriage <laughs> somehow not become unraveled would have clearly been the next Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. Rav Schneer, who was a beautiful human being, a sweet human being, couldn't measure, couldn't hold a candle in learning to Rav Dive. But Rav Dive, because he gets divorced, so what happens when divorce becomes more common, so the fiction of, I'm choosing my successor because I'm choosing my best student, falls apart because once, oh, I'm not the son-in-law anymore. Wait, but I should be. I was the son-in-law. No, you're not anymore. So somehow Reb Dove gets shunted aside and there is no Rosh Hashiv in Lakewood. And he's, you know, running Beis Talmud in Eretz Yisrael, but he can't become Rosh Hashiv in Lakewood, which would have made the most sense, right? Because he was, right? Because that would have been like the Ravid, Rav Avdezdin and the Ravad. That would have been like Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim uh, Shmulevitz and possibly Rav Nochem, but this didn't work. So in Lakewood, what you have, what you have is a power vacuum, and they end up putting there Rav, Rav Schneer, who is basically a caretaker, a wonderful human being, but basically a caretaker who sort of builds the yeshiva. There's no, this farm from Rav Schneer in learning, again, he knew how to give a sheer Chloe, of course, if he needed. So now you have Rav Malkiel as the Rosh Hashiva, right? You have Rav Malkiel, Cutler as the Rosh Hashiva. Now, Rav Mal- if, if you would, Malkiel Cutler would not be Malkiel Cutler. His name was Malkiel Warch or Kivalevich, right? And he would be uh, one of the Yungalites in the Bismedrish. And they would give out Bechinus and they would go around. Would Malkiel Cutler have been Zoha to be the, like, the, the head of the yeshiva, right? Here is an example of what happens, right? What happens is, now, how much does Rav Malkio really affect 5,000 people? I don't know. But officially, you know, as, 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 as time goes on, Rav Malkio, I, I, again, Rav Yerucham is only able to get in because he's, he's Rav Dov's son-in-law, right? And, and I don't know why Zvulun Schwartzman, I guess, didn't want to be Rosh Hashiva, right? I, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he wanted to stay in Eretz Yisrael, but it was offered to Rav Zvulun because he had the Cutler genes uh, in in his head, right. I, so I, I want to push back a little a little bit because 
I do want to give, I know we're almost out of time, but I do want to give a little bit of a defense of, of this nepotism business. I, I'm not a fan of it either. But, but to a certain extent, I think there's two benefits, and I'd like you to respond to both of them if, if we can. Number one, appointing a son or a son-in-law, even if they're not deserving, um, which I, I agree happens um, more often than the other way. Number one, what you do have is a system that you can at least control. Meaning, because then you don't have a competition for who's the best student in the yeshiva, because you're limited to a certain extent, so you can maintain a certain level, you can maintain a system. And number two, from a, I want to try maybe from a Kabbalistic perspective, maybe the fact that you're taking a son or or a grandson is, is carrying on the genes of, of that first Rosh Hashiva, and to a certain extent, able to carry on a certain merit or, or spiritual power that carries on through the children and grandchildren. Although I, I do agree that's a weak argument, but if you combine that with, with the first argument, which is that that's a way of keeping it from being a free-for-all, it, could that be a defense of, of what's happening? Yeah, again, the question really is, though, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. I I hear what you're saying. Uh, You know, when you have a yeshiva that gets so large, um, does does it really register who is running the show? I think Uh, it does, because, I mean, what if we had, what if Lakewood today had a real Rosh Hashiva? And uh, again, compared to me, they're all going to go in. But, but, but in terms of what's out there in the world, if Lakewood Yeshiva would have that real God, I think it would be a much greater Yeshiva. It yeah. would be much more respected. It would be much more honored. Yeah. People would, who, who's sending their Shilas to Lakewood, right? The biggest Yeshiva in America. No one's sending their questions there. No one's looking to, yeah, people within Lakewood, but it, it doesn't. I mean, anyone who's outside of it kind of looks at it with their nose in the other direction. Um, so who knows? Uh, you're saying it doesn't matter. I think it does. I think if we'd have, if we would have those Rosh Hashivas, I think American Jewry would be different. Could be. I, I think there's there's a there's two things that I think have changed, and we can end it off with this. One thing is is that the numbers have become so large that it's one thing when you have like when I came to Mir, we had 300 guys. So there the person who's running the show made a difference because there was an impact to at least 200 of the 300 people, right? Today, when things are so large, the impact is is really diffused because you know that you're not going to be able to control that. And Volosian never had anything close to a thousand people. And yet we talk about it as if it's this incredible Camelot of learning. And yet, you know, it had 400 guys, maybe, maybe. Perhaps the number, right? Belosian tells all these big yeshivas. So I think the numbers create a diffusion of being able even to be macabre. I'm an elitist, as you know, and I believe that these numbers, in a way, f- create a situation where it's not only unwieldy, but there isn't the sense of understanding by the populace of what's great and what's not. Yeah, right. again, at this point, we're gonna we're gonna run into a new subject, which is the size of yeshivas. Right, but but but, 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 I, but I think 
in terms of impact, they're having impact on whoever they're having impact. The, the Rosh Hashiva is still the Rosh Hashiva, and his primary students are okay. still his primary okay. students in whatever yeshiva you're in. The second thing that's happened is the global interconnectivity and the access to information has empowered people, Hamoin, I'll include myself and others, but definitely people that are, let's say, part of the Velt who are looking for leadership, it's empowered them in a way that they push back. There was a time where the gap was extreme. And you could say, Misham Yitzah Haroli Yisrael. Today, there's so many of the Balabatim that are have enough learning or have enough learning on their on their fingertips or can turn to other avenues that they become skeptical of what they're hearing. So I, I think we're in a door where we're we're more cynical about what we're hearing from and we are also able to respond even though again there was a glory era of Rav Moshe and Rav Aaron but the difference between this the 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 lockstep balabas then and the and the gaon and the rav was much wider than it is today yeah i i i hear what you're suggesting i i don't i, don't, I think that that's actually the result of of the process we're describing. I think that the um, if you look at the leadership of the Jewish community in the last twenty years, just the last twenty years, the leadership of American Jewry has been. I hate to use the word pathetic, and, and who am I to talk? But it's been pathetic. It really has. And I can, as as someone who's a subject of these leaders, I'm. I'm terribly disappointed by, look at Corona, like the, the, the rabbis all ran into their little caves and hid, just to talk to the doctors, let the doctors tell you what to do. And like zero leadership came out. And it's because, you know, we've, we've lost, we're very awesome. And, and I, I, do, I do think that you're right, that much of this is because we, um, we took away the power of the choice of the leaders from the people. And instead it was given to the people in charge or the people who believe themselves to be in charge. And we're kind of running in a sort of spiritual um, spiritual uh, dictatorship um, uh, based on you know, the elitist um, regime creating or holding on to power with, uh, with their whatever they have. But, but, but it's almost like Corona's pointed out the emperor almost has no clothes because so many people are finding their own either online or other places where okay, you know, whatever's going on there is not affecting me. Whereas, you know, I, I think look, clearly Rav Moshe Feinstein's death uh, in America left an incredible halal, right? Everybody will still tell you from the 80s, like, what happened? Part of it was bowing to what was going on in Eretz Yisrael. There was, there was almost an idea that Rav Moshe was this incredible giant and America wasn't even worthy of his greatness, but they realized that he was this great giant. So when Rav Moshe's nostalgic, it's almost like, okay, America, you anyway. Yeah, you had your chance. Now right, it's back. Right. In other words, you're any, this is what you are anyway. So of course, you know, kowtow to what's the Gedolim and Eretz Yisrael, right? So, so I think, you know, and, and, and you see that. You see that in terms of Rav Zalman, Rebel Yoshev, and, and others, that they become, you know, the Gedolim Ador. America, it was almost like Rav Moshe was able to enchant even the Bnei Eretz Yisrael. Rav Yashiv used to say himself, only Rav Moshe could pass it on this. And Rav Yashiv said this when he himself was considered a Mudhairo in Eretz Yisrael. So I, I think that's... And, and, and as you pointed out before, that whole era, Rav Moshe, Rav Yaakov, 
you know, either a Schwab or Hutner, that whole, they, like their politics or don't like their politics, these were giants and they were, they were true leaders. Uh, and, but remember, they were, and I think this is true, sociologists, I think, will bear me out. They were leading a smaller group, in a sense, and a less educated group, a less chutzpahdika group, a less sophisticated group. No, I, I disagree. I think that people needed to be less chutzpahdika because they were actual bona fide leaders. And the, the people we have today, unfortunately, the most people do behave like sheep. That's another thing that we learned during Corona is that basically 75% of people will just do exactly what you tell them to do, even if it's to walk off a cliff. It, it's a, it's, it's, and I think that's the problem, not so much the education as much as we just don't have the, the giants who could rally. I think no matter how large the group, someone like Rabbi Akiva can run 24,000 students and have a connection with everyone. And again, obviously, he's someone who is just Akiva and Yosef from Mishpochas Geirim, and and he. Yeah, no, I agree. That's uh, that's, that's. However, even possible. right, but again, when but when there was a question who would run the yeshiva, they knew who Rabbi Kiva was. Shishmo right, Yosef, but, 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 but there was a. He didn't have the yichas. Right? Didn't have the well, someone who definitely has the yichas, and maybe who knows? Maybe he will still be crowned as the manig. <laughs> of at least the Illinois Center for Jewish Studies and beyond, my Chavrusa, Rabbi Kalman Warch. And my Chavrusa, the, uh, who I appoint as the Rosh Hashiva of the current Velazhin Yeshiva. Um, <laughs> that resides somehow in the, in, in the cloud that uh, circles my house here. Velazhin uh, lives in your heart. <laughs> Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.